problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Anel Sheline, research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Anel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. So the United States has a long history of backing rather ugly dictatorial regimes in the Middle East. Explain the basic strategic logic of of this support. Well, historically, as people are probably aware, a lot of this had to do with oil and the idea that even if some of these regimes didn't really line up with U.S. values, it was still very important for the U.S. to maintain access to fossil fuels because at, at the time, in particular, kind of thinking about the era of the 70s and 80s, the U.S. was very dependent on oil coming out of primarily the Persian Gulf. However, that is no longer the case. The majority of Persian Gulf oil goes to Asia and particularly to China. And so it kind of leaves this puzzle of why hasn't the U.S. updated our policies towards these countries, given that oil can no longer really explain our our willingness to to support these countries, even when they act in ways that is con- that are contrary to U.S. interests. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia. Um, U.S.-Saudi relations took a few unusual turns in the Trump years. And I think the Trump administration exhibited not much beyond full unalloyed support for Riyadh. Um, And that's something that candidate Biden seemed to pledge to change. So bring us through that timeline a little bit and explain what President Biden has done or, or not done to change the relationship. Yeah. So while Trump was in power, obviously, we saw things like the horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi. We're coming up on, it'll be three years since his murder in 2018 in early October. Um, and Trump's unwillingness to act in any way to to condemn Mohammed bin Salman or the Saudis. And as you said, as a candidate, Biden pledged very strenuously to push back against that. He said he was going to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah. And this played well because we had seen efforts by Congress, for example, to try to uh, force Trump to to act to, to, for example, end U.S. support for the war, first the Saudi war on Yemen, to also hold the Saudis to account for the Hashoji murder. But Trump vetoed those efforts and and sort of prevented Congress from in any way trying to hold by or hold the Saudis to account. And so when Biden came to power, there was a lot of optimism that things were going to change. And Biden's first foreign policy speech, he laid out an agenda that initially seemed very promising. For example, on the Yemen war, he said the U.S. was going to end U.S. support for offensive operations, including relevant arms sales. However, then it became clear that perhaps the status quo of very strong U.S. support for Saudi Arabia was in fact going to prevail. The, an early indicator of this was that although Biden did release a report that very clearly indicated that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for Hashoji's murder, uh, for, for ordering the murder, um, he de- Biden declined to sanction uh, the crown prince. Um, and many human rights groups came out and, and condemned that. Um, 
And then the Biden administration did not clarify what exactly they meant by offensive operations. And so although certain U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia were paused, others were allowed to go through. Uh, most recently, the U.S. announced a $500 million contract for maintenance on Saudi attack helicopters, Blackhawks and Apaches. Very clearly, these these are seem to be involved in offensive operations. And so it's really not clear how the Biden administration is trying to square this kind of a deal with their stated commitment to ending support for offensive operations. So in general, it has it's just been somewhat frustrating um, that the Biden administration has not been willing to maintain sort of the the commitments that Biden had made as a candidate and that earlier in his in his presidency it seemed that he really was going to finally hold the Saudis accountable for the ways that they not only have behaved toward Yemen but in general uh playing a destabilizing role in the in the Middle East in particular in per, under the the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman he has been a destabilizing force, obviously, for things, for example, holding the prime minister of Lebanon uh, captive for a period of time. Um, we, The way that he has treated his own citizens, the level of oppression has really been unprecedented. So in general, it's it's just been somewhat frustrating knowing, again, that the U.S. is no longer dependent on the Saudis for oil um, and that, in fact, arguably, the Saudis are quite dependent on the U.S. for their security. And so in theory, the United States does have leverage here to tell them, look, you know, we're Mohammed bin Salman. We support your efforts to integrate Saudi women into the workplace. I think that is quite commendable. But we're not going to tolerate you waging war on your devastated, impoverished neighbor, Yemen. And we're not going to tolerate other actions that you're taking to try to undermine uh, democracy or, you know, democratic movements in the Middle East that, you know, we're happy to partner with you when you behave responsibly, but we're not going to back you up when you behave in ways that that are quite destabilizing and that undermine U.S. interests in the region. What about uh, Egypt? That's another case of a long-standing recipient of U.S. aid and other support. Explain the origins of that relationship and, and why it's gotten particularly rocky in recent years. Yes. Yeah, so I, I do think it's important to keep in mind that there there's a distinction between the, the countries that are major recipients of U.S. military aid. So Israel being the top recipient, Egypt being the second highest recipient, Jordan the third. Uh, Afghanistan also used to receive a lot of military aid, although that is no longer the case. Um, in contrast to countries like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE or Kuwait or Oman that purchase U.S. weapons, these countries, we, we don't just give them um, military aid. However, by purchasing U.S. weapons, they they are then entitled to this sort of suite of additional levels of support. So military to military trainings or interactions, or it's, so it's not only, you know, the idea that the U.S. military puts forward is this is part of the value of buying uh, American-made weapons is that you also then get the U.S. military as a partner. So I think just important to kind of keep in mind there the difference between uh, a Saudi Arabia that buys a lot of American weapons, is is the largest single purchaser of, of American-made weapons, in contrast to an Egypt where the U.S. is continuing to just give 
military aid. They also purchase weapons and weapon systems. But but again, much of this is is simply given. And this goes back to the peace treaty that Egypt agreed to sign with Israel. Uh, this was back in 1979 with President Anwar Sadat, who was later assassinated uh, as a result of signing this treaty. And this at the time, well, the the idea was that the United States didn't want Egypt to attack Israel anymore, as it had done uh, several times at following the creation of the state of Israel. But that, that context is quite out of date at this point. That there there are there is no country in the Middle East that would actually go after. Israel. Egypt has a very close relationship with Israel. Um, they partner on on many different fronts, and <laughs> Egypt would has really no inclination to attack Israel. Furthermore, even a country like Iran might say things, aggressive things, um, but again, Israel is a nuclear armed state, and <laughs> Iran would not be so foolish as to attack them. So, so to go back to sort of the the present context that. Egypt continues to receive, I believe it's $1.3 billion each year in U.S. military aid. And some of this money had been conditioned under the Obama administration after um, President Sisi, who seized power in a coup after ousting the democratically elected Muslim Brotherhood candidate, Mohamed Morsi, who was elected in 2012. About a year later, he was kicked out um, by this, this military coup by Sisi. And following that, there was a the Rabah massacre where the Egyptian military killed hundreds of people who were supporters of President Sisi in the Rabah Square in Cairo. And after that, the Obama administration said, hold on, that, you know, we, we know you guys commit a lot of human rights abuses, but this was really beyond the pale. And so they were going to condition some of this military aid to Egypt, but ultimately that was overridden. And so what we saw recently with the Biden administration was this question of, are they going to hold up some of the military aid, you know, given the extreme levels of repression the Sisi regime has been carrying out against Egyptians, even some um, Americans with dual citizenship um, in Egypt. And ultimately, the Biden administration decided they were going to condition sort of a a portion of the portion of the aid, um, but in, it was really just a slap on the wrist because, in general, the United States is continuing to provide, as I said, this this massive amount of military aid to the Sisi regime, despite the fact that the the context within which that was agreed, as I said, is really no longer operative. That the U.S. does not have to bribe. Egypt to not attack Israel anymore. Um, so th this is really an example of something where when the Biden administration says they're going to prioritize human rights, but then does not, in fact, reconsider this excessive amount of military aid to Egypt, it, it just really undermines their their position that they're that they're actually going to prioritize human rights concerns. Right. So it seems like there are a number of uh, strains on the traditional U.S. approach of backing uh, a number of these regimes. One is the embarrassment over the fact that we claim to be the arbiter and promoter around the world of, of human rights, and yet our clients are engaging in uh, serious violations. On the other hand, a lot of the historically contingent reasons we are supporting these regimes 
uh, are quite outdated and don't apply to the current strategic context. And yet there's enormous uh, resistance and reluctance, particularly in the executive branch, but in DC in general, to change the nature of these relationships. So um, one possible sort of train of logic, uh, you mentioned in a recent piece that the Biden administration is in part at least reluctant to step away from these relationships or say make US aid more conditional because of their belief that traditional US partners in this region will be open to overtures from Russia and China. And in order to protect against the prospect of increased Russian or Chinese influence in the region, America needs to stay as engaged as ever. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it, it's been interesting to watch the Biden administration try to walk this narrow line between, on the one hand, they say, well, it's preferable if countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia continue to buy their weapons from us because we make them sit and listen to a lecture about human rights. And we know that neither China nor Russia care about human rights. And so the cause of human rights is better served if we sell them these, these you know, tools that are, that are used to end human life um, rather than if the Russians or Chinese do so. And on, on its face, <laughs> I think this is fairly absurd. The idea that somehow giving the Egyptians or the Saudis a lecture about the importance of human rights, but then going ahead and selling them the weapons anyway, just really indicates very clearly what the U.S.'s priorities here really are. And as I stated in the piece, in some ways, I think it actually undermines human rights because it is completely anathema to the cause of human rights to sell these kinds of weapons. And so in general, this, this also gets to the question of should the U.S. provide a military aid or sell weapons, but only conditionally that, you know, the U.S. would be willing to send Egypt this military aid if they do a better job on human rights. And arguably there, I, th I think actually the, the real argument here should be the U.S. should no longer provide military aid to the Egyptian regime, nor to, to the government of Israel, um, because these, these are massive human rights violators. And it is, it is inconsistent with a position of trying to protect human rights to continue to provide this level of, of military aid. But that gets to the underlying condition here, which really has to do with domestic considerations in the United States. And, you know, as you open this question about, you know, the reluctance to change the U.S. position here goes back to the fact that even when the U.S. gives this money to Egypt or to Israel, much of that they then use to purchase U.S. weapons. So it's, you know, this is taxpayer money that Congress allocates to be given to Israel, given to Egypt or Jordan. And then those governments use that money to then buy American weapons that are made by private manufacturers, often the big five, the Northrop Grumman, Raytheons, you know, the, those big American weapons manufacturers. So it's, it's in effect a subsidization of the military industrial complex of these, these massive and very wealthy uh, private weapons manufacturers that the U.S. taxpayers are, are 
paying for. Yeah, I think those domestic aspects of uh, kind of the incentive structures that make uh, policy inertia and foreign policy so ubiquitous. But I wonder if I can ask you to speculate a little bit on this this fear that's apparently common in the White House that if we do change our approach and our posture towards these security partners in the Middle East, we have to worry about China or Russia coming in to fill the void. You know, are, do you think they're right about that? I mean, I see issues of both capability and intent here. Doesn't seem to me that Russia has all that much capability to project power in the kind of way that the United States does in the Middle East. Um, and China might be gaining some of those capabilities in the coming years, but it's not clear to me that they want to replace the United States uh, in this region. I mean, um, you know, to protect our security clients against the influence of Russia and China is to, in some part, implicitly acknowledge that they, you know, they have utility as as security partners. Uh, you know, they, they're good for U.S. interests. And it seems to me U.S. influence in the region hasn't really accomplished very much except to suck us into unnecessary wars and, and proxy conflicts. So, I mean, does this logic of preventing Russia or China from gaining some kind of foothold in the Middle East, uh, does that pass the smell test with you? <laughs> no, I, th I think you put that really well. Um, in particular, the fact that we know Russia, as you said, doesn't really have the capability, and at least at this point, China really is not all that interested. I mean, both have observed the extent to which U.S. sort of entanglement in Middle Eastern affairs has has not benefited the United States and has only embroiled us in these forever wars. Um, but for people who do express alarm or alarmism about the apparent threat posed by Russia and China, you know, it's possible that things could change. China could change its intentions, um, could decide it wants to pursue a more militaristic uh, foreign policy. But the point is, if uh, U.S. security partners in the Middle East were, in fact, to to try to change, to purchase weapons from either Russia or China or another country, um, they're not compatible with the existing systems. I mean, these countries the, uh, have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in purchasing American weapons. And it would take years, decades, if they if they were really committed to to shifting over, for example, to a a security structure that was fully compatible with China, that would take a very, very long time. I mean, these are wealthy countries, uh, but they that we're talking about a scale that they would not be able to achieve except over a very long period. So there's not really a concern that tomorrow the U.S. might wake up and Saudi Arabia is is now uh, a security partner of of China. But on the other hand, I do think, and this is what I talked about in the piece, um, many of these Gulf countries are are feeling concerned that the U.S. is no longer as interested in their part of the world. Um, so, for example. When Obama signed the Iran nuclear deal, many Gulf leaders took that as, as sort of an, an insult that that the U.S. was embracing the Iranian adversary, that 
that Obama hadn't um, adequately consulted with them about this. Uh, further than their fears were, were reinforced by the fact that when we saw the attacks on Saudi oil facilities, um, ostensibly from the Iranians, although I believe the Houthis claimed the, the attack, that Trump really did not respond. And this in particular, that the Saudis felt um, quite affronted that, that Trump said, well, you know, they attacked the Saudis. They didn't attack us. And the Saudis up to that point has sort of been, had felt that an attack on them would be treated like an attack on, on the U.S. And it was clear that that was not, in fact, the case. And so most recently with Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, again, a lot of these, these leaders are feeling that they need to diversify their security partnerships that they cannot clearly cannot rely on the United States um, to guarantee their security. And in many ways, I think this is this is good, that the United States should not be seen as providing for the security of all of these other countries. I mean, the same could be said for, for the European countries that have long relied on the United States security umbrella, when in at the end of the day, the United States and American leaders should be primarily concerned with the the safety and well-being of Americans in the United States, of the people living here. We shouldn't necessarily be acting in such a way that puts other countries' interests ahead of our own. So this gets back to America's willingness to prioritize what Israel wants, for example, over what is best for the United States or what Saudi Arabia wants over what is best for the United States. So in general, you know, to get back to this concern about China and Russia, I do anticipate that we may see some of these countries that perhaps do start uh, indicating more willingness. They, are, they already have indicated more willingness to partner with both China and Russia. But in general, I think this might actually be good for regional security because part of the dynamics we've seen in the region have reflected the fact that the United States has created this sort of artificial power imbalance where you have the, the countries that are partners with the U.S. have had free reign to act as aggressively as they wanted. You know, we see Israel engaging in all kinds of provocative actions towards Iran and Iran responding. Um, but in general, you know, I, I think that a, a region where um, China and Russia, who will not show such favoritism, whether it's towards Israel or towards the Saudis or the Emiratis or what have you, that, that then these countries will need to conduct their foreign policy in such a manner that reflects their own capabilities and does not reflect their belief that if they get themselves into trouble, if they start a war, that the big brother U.S. will come raging in to protect them. And so as a result, this is why we've seen the, the talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia, as well as other members of the GCC, um, happening in Baghdad. We've seen these tensions going down. And I think this is why, as I said in the piece, we have Israel feeling a little bit concerned because I think part of the Abraham Accords from Israel's perspective was this opportunity to put together an anti-Iran coalition. Um, and yet now we're seeing perhaps some of 
you know, Israel's hoped for Arab partners to go against Iran are now ratcheting down tensions with Tehran. And so Israel is feeling a little bit concerned that, you know, maybe the U.S. isn't going to be there to back up its its uh, more aggressive posture towards Iran. And maybe the Gulf partners won't be so eager to do that either. So again, my, my hope is that as Israel and as other countries are learning to live in a more a multipolar region that is not quite so dominated by U.S. military hegemony, that they're going to need to learn how to live together. And so this was something Obama had said back in 2016, that the Saudis and Iranians have to learn how to share the region. And I think that the Israelis and the Iranians also have to learn how to share. They just have to understand that that um, if they are going to fight a war, it needs it's 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 up to them. Like they they have to be willing to take that on by themselves. My concern is that at this point, if Israel were in fact to start a shooting war with Iran, the U.S. would jump back in and defend Israel, which would not be in U.S. interests, and I think would be a very bad decision. But at this point, the U.S. does remain sufficiently closely tied to Israel that I, I fear that 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 could be something that might happen or that Israel might try to force to happen as it sees the U.S. potentially uh, being unwilling to to provide um, as much support as it once did. You know, this uh, Arab-Iranian sort of detente uh, in recent years is one of the most interesting shifts, I think, in, in the region in, in recent years. And like you said, it sort of started because we, with Obama, started to negotiate with Iran and it became less clear on whose side we were. And this sort of makes me think that uh, many of our client states in the region are exploiting fears, whether it be um, the danger of Iran let loose in the region or the danger of external great powers like China or Russia coming in to supplant the United States. Our allies kind of use that fear in order to cajole us into further support, it seems to me. Um, and that seems to be happening when we refrain from, uh, when we hold weapons sales, you know, they, they seek others from Russia or China. And before the detente with Iran, before they said, well, we might be in a tough spot because we don't have the U.S.'s backing, so we should engage in diplomacy. That seems like a positive result of you know the U.S. kind of standing back a little bit. But it does suggest that their previous stated concerns about how dangerous Iran was were kind of inflated uh, for the United States' consumption in a, in a way. Um, and uh, I think that needs to be taken into consideration across the board. And specifically, you also wrote recently about this meeting between Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett with President Biden, where Bennett reportedly urged him not to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria and Iraq. Seems like a bold thing to suggest to the President of the United States where U.S. troops should be. Uh, and I don't you know, I follow this stuff rather closely. It's not all that clear to me why U.S. troops are in both of those countries. So explain the the strategic logic behind that conversation. Yes, well, I, I absolutely agree that it, it really is galling that Israel would, that the prime minister of Israel would uh, presume to tell the president of the United States where American troops should be. I completely agree. I think it was 
President Clinton, who said something along the lines of, who's the superpower here? Um, But it's also not surprising because the United States has so consistently behaved in a manner that prioritizes Israeli preferences over what is actually in U.S. interests in the region. Uh, From my perspective, a a key U.S. interest would be regional security and stability. And and by security and stability, I mean (laughs) no unnecessary wars. Um, So I absolutely agree also with your point that concerns about Iran were inflated. But I think a lot of this was often a vicious cycle um, that the U.S. obviously um, since since the hostage crisis in Iran, Americans have been very suspicious of the Islamic Republic of Iran for good reason. Uh, you know, I think for that generation of Americans, they understandably um, felt quite uh, worried about about this new regime in Iran. But I, you know, that's that's now uh, more than forty years ago. And yet we're continuing to see U.S. policies towards Iran, um, continuing to force it to behave in ways um, that are that are unusual. As Pompeo said, if Iran would act like a normal state, we'd treat it like a normal state. But the point is, the way the U.S. treats Iran does not allow it to behave more normally. Um, And so back to the cycle that because Arab partners know that the U.S., in particular the Trump administration, were primed to to any sort of framework that was antagonistic towards Iran, they they bought into that. They emphasized how much they, they also view Iran as a threat. I do think it's important to acknowledge the level of sectarian tension that absolutely, you know, many, um, unfortunately, the the degree of Sunni Shia sectarianism has been quite elevated following the, for example, the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, as well as the extent to which Iran and Saudi Arabia have both played up the sectarian dimension of, of their sort of geopolitical spat. But in general, you know, studying um, ethnic violence across the board, we should all be reminded that ethnicities are more likely to live in harmony with one another than they are to fight each other. And that it's only when you have these sort of broader underlying geopolitical interests that then drive ethnic conflict, that then then we suddenly see, oh, well, the Sunnis and Shias are fighting each other. And then it goes back into this narrative that, well, they've they've always fought each other. So all that to say, you know, to get back to the opening theme that the Biden administration had come in with a lot of promises to to really reconsider um, U.S. policy in the Middle East. And yet, Instead, what we've seen is much of the same. Um, unfortunately, even much many of the same policies, even that the Trump administration was pursuing. So, you know, in 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 general, I, I I do think it's it's just been somewhat disappointing from the perspective of of someone who who did hope that perhaps Biden might actually stick to some of his campaign rhetoric on some of these things. Right, and a lot of that campaign rhetoric from Biden did emphasize human rights, which is why your work on uh, our continued support of these regimes is is really useful and enlightening. But I sort of, uh, I'm curious, I think there's a disagreement among people who want human rights 
uh, as a value elevated in U.S. foreign policy beyond mere rhetoric. Um, so, I mean, what what exactly do you think U.S. policy should be in the region with respect to human rights? I think I I think it essentially bifurcates down two lines, negative and positive. You know, if we have a negative agenda there, it would be to stop supporting and enabling human rights violations uh, by supporting the regimes that engage in it. And a positive agenda would be to be more deeply engaged so that we can uh, promote human rights and greater respect for human rights in the region in a kind of let's change how it is type of thing. Um, how do you draw the line or, or how, do you, how do you see that issue? I, you know, my, my work at the Quincy Institute, we are focused on trying to push for a less militaristic U.S. foreign policy. And we, we are not a human rights organization, you know, although I, I do think human rights are important. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it's not kind of the, my primary area of focus. Um, and so in terms of what should govern U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East, I think it should be U.S. interests. You know, what will be most effective at helping Americans to be safe and to allow for American well-being? Um, how I do think, however, that greater uh, respect in U.S. foreign policy for human rights would actually contribute to this. So going back, for example, you know, we just observed the sobering 20th anniversary, obviously, of 9-11. And there was a lot written about sort of the original um, motivation of bin Laden for, for going in or for, for planning the, the attacks on the United States. And a big part of that uh, was is Israel's occupation of Palestine. You know, that continues to be an issue that motivates not only, uh, you know, individuals who are willing to embrace violence, but, but many sort of ordinary Muslim individuals, whether in the Middle East or in Asia or in this country, um, that, that that remains a, a huge source of, of anger and um, resentment and instability. Because as you see, many of these countries, the you know, U.S. security partners, um, that when Israel was first created, you know, there, there were wars fought against Israel. But at this point, none of these countries are, are going to fight a war against Israel. Um, and you see the, the leaders behaving in ways like normalizing with Israel um, in ways that their populations are very opposed to. And and so the the concern, I think, being that if the United States continues to support regimes that not only are are willing to look the other way um, in t regarding Israel's violation of, of Palestinians' rights, um, but that also continue to engage in really horrific levels of abuse and repression of their own populations, the U.S. is potentially setting ourselves up for another Iranian revolution where you have a, a strong U.S. security partner swept out of power by a populist movement that then sets up a highly antagonistic regime. And as I said, 40 years later, we're, we're still sort of dealing with the fallout from that. And I'm, I'm not to say I'm predicting the downfall of, of the House of Saud or 
you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that MBS will become king and, you know, MBZ and the UAE. These are very powerful and secure leaders. Um, but it it just under it just it, it reiterates the extent to which U.S. policy uh, continues to behave. The U.S. continues to behave in ways that are very cynical. We talk about human rights and yet our actual policy choices in no way actually reflect the protection of human rights, whether it's in Israel or in Saudi Arabia or the UAE, et cetera. And, and that this is dangerous for Americans, that this then leads to, as has discussed, that the resentment directed against the United States, again, whether from actual terrorists or, or just, you know, people who are frustrated, and that this undermines America's claim to be this exceptional country that, you know, we have uh, a particular role to play in history. I mean, I I don't really buy into all that, but there are many people for whom, who who would want the United States to actually hold up our values and, and to be an actor on the world stage that actually um, behaves in ways that are in keeping with our, our commitment to, to democracy and to human rights. So this is why in general, I, I I don't necessarily I don't think it's realistic for the United States to to put human rights front and center. I think the United States needs to put American America's interests front and center. This is the duty of any government is to work to advance their own the interests of their own people. But I do think that the way the United States goes about that should be in a manner that is more in keeping with our stated values. Anel Sheeline, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John.